Thanks, Mark, and thank you, team, for leading us. Uh, Christmas is a great season of hope. It's a great season of need for hope. And we're going to open the Bible here in just a moment and hear about God's hope. Um, First, my heart's kind of heavy this morning, even as we celebrate Christmas, as are some of yours. Um, You may know and may have heard that a young man who was part of our church for some time, Kevin Marshall, uh, just died this past week. And I want to take an opportunity to just pray about that um, right now. We're going to be having a service for Kevin likely this week. As soon as we finalize details, uh, keep your eyes uh, peeled to the church's website and our Facebook page, and we will list those. But, but would you pray with me um, as we go before God, before we come to his word? God, we do come to you this morning grateful that there is tremendous hope in Christ and very mindful of the need that we and so many around us have for that hope. We've heard of the need that's going on in Haiti right now, a country that seems a world away, and yet geographically it's pretty close. But Father God, we pray that there would continue to be tremendous hope through that ministry. Much closer to home, God, I know myself and so many of the the members of our church have felt um, Kevin's loss. We pray this morning for great hope, especially for Kevin's family, for all those most closely connected to him. Pray for Liz this morning, uh, AJ as well. God, we pray for Catherine and for Ashley. Father, we pray that in the midst of whatever we may be fearing, desperation, fear, um, shock, hurt, God, would you, be, would you be our anchor in that desperation? Would you be our hope in the midst of that fear? God, would you be joy in the midst of shock and peace even as we experience the hurt? God, the, the world constantly reminds us that Christmas is not just a light thing. Um, you weren't messing around when you came down to be a man and to die for our sins. You died to redeem us from death. And so, Father, at this Christmas season, I pray that, that, that in these next couple of weeks, even this morning, you would reveal yourself to us in, in a new depth and, and with a greater clarity and purpose than we've even seen you up till now. God, even as we turn our attention now to your word, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things there. For our good and for your glory, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. And I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. If you've got them with you, uh, if not, feel free to use that Bible in the rack in front of you. As we continue a series in the, the New Testament book of Exodus, we arrive at the end of the first half of this book today, and then we're going to pause this series for the next few weeks and focus on Christmas next week, and then on sharing the gospel uh, in the first of the year, and then we'll pick up the second half of Exodus uh, in February. While you're turning your Bibles there, I was reminded in my preparation this morning of something that happened to me when I was about maybe 12 or 13 years old. I learned one of those um, life lessons the hard way. Maybe some of you know what I'm... Actually, maybe all of you are like, no, I always just learn the easy way. Well, I'm going to tell you how I learned the hard way. It was one of these lessons that actually taught me a lot about not only good judgment and, and better decision making, but I also learned a lot about healthy fear in healthy relationships. Healthy fear is actually a good thing in relationships. And, and here's what I mean. It was, it was a Halloween night. I was, like I say, probably 12 or 13 years old. Um, too old to dress up and go trick-or-treating, but too young to not want to participate. And so uh, I ended up hanging out with a neighborhood kid named Scott that I had grown up with. We were the same age. And um, he was a little bit, he, he was known to be a troublemaker at times. But uh, we decided we were going to go hang out. So we're out there Halloween night. The neighborhood's 
full of kids trick-or-treating and doing their thing. And uh, from a distance, uh, Scott sees another kid that we know named Drew. And Drew's family was real close to my family. We knew each other well. And he's coming our way trick-or-treating with his brother. And so Scott says, I got a great idea. Problem number one, I should have been alert to, but I wasn't. He said, um, I'm going to go hide in this bush over here, a dark, shadowy bush. You stay here, and Drew's going to see you and start talking, because Drew and I were friends, and, uh, and I'll jump out, and we'll scare him, and it'll be fun. It'll be some Halloween fun. Isn't that a great idea? Now, I should also add at this point that Scott didn't particularly like Drew. Another thing that really should have rung my, this is not going to end well, bells, but um, I think my good judgment was in the shop getting worked on that week or whatever. So like an idiot, I go, okay. So Scott goes and hides in the bush and, and along comes Drew. And I start talking with him and then two things happened in a flash before I could react to either one of them. The first thing is I saw a blur from my peripheral vision that was a human missile named Scott who indeed came out from the bush, but that was the only thing that he did that he said he was going to do. Rather than yelling at Drew or trying to scare him, Scott charged him like an NFL linebacker with a clean shot at the quarterback, threw a punch, knocked him flat on the ground, and landed in a heap as Drew splayed out on the concrete sidewalk. And before I could even process that, the second thing happened. The second thing was Drew's dad, who was there, but Scott hadn't seen him, <laughs> saw some crazy person come out from a bush, attack his son, and so in a sort of jolt of parental protection, he ran out, he grabbed Scott off of his son and threw him to the ground on the other side. And Scott was just stunned because he'd just gotten thrown around. He jumps up and we're all looking at each other. And I'm standing there. Scott's looking at like, what just happened to me? I got thrown out. Drew's laying on the ground crying because he just got attacked. His dad is livid, ready to tear somebody's head off. And I'm standing there going, what just happened? <laughs> I mean, like, literally, it was like the eye of a hurricane. All this happened right around me and just didn't touch me. And I'm like, uh, uh. And Drew's dad looks at Scott, recognizes him because we were all been in that neighborhood for a long time. Um, looks at me and kind of figures out, wait, were you a part of this? And he gives us some choice words and he picks up his crying son and he takes him home. Now, I have to go home where my parents are waiting. And I knew that they would get a call from Drew's dad before I got there. It was several blocks for me to walk home. So they were going to know what was, what was up before I even got there. And I got to tell you, walking home, I felt one of the deepest lows I have ever felt in my life. This was almost 40 years ago, and I still remember the feeling like it was yesterday. And I think really the, the, the deep low came from a couple things. Certainly, there was partly there was a fear of punishment, right? I knew I was, I was in for it, and I deserved it. Um, I didn't throw a punch at anybody, but I had been foolish, I got used, and somebody else got hurt. And I needed to answer for that. And I, I knew my parents well enough to know I was going to answer for that. But you know what? There was something even worse than the fear of punishment, although that was there. I think the worst part of it all was I dreaded that I had let my parents down. Like they were going to be surprised, unpleasantly surprised, that their son, whom they assumed had better judgment than this, had allowed himself to be used so stupidly to hurt a kid who was a family friend. I mean, 
And I was going to, it was harder to stomach the idea that I was going to disappoint my mother and father than any punishment. If I could have taken a punishment and not had them been disappointed, that would have been a fair trade at that point. Both, both the fear of punishment and the maybe even more strongly felt ache at disappointing people who loved me and who I loved made for a very, very difficult and long walk home. That dual weight that I was feeling that night walking home, the, the, the fear of, of, of punishment from people who rightly have authority over me, but then also the even deeper fear of, of disappointing and letting down people I love, those two together are what the Bible calls fear, or, or what we might call a healthy fear. When the weight of someone's legitimate authority over us and desire to please them combine, that's what God wanted from the Israelites in the Old Testament book of Exodus. And Exodus is the story of how he sought to get it. We're going through this Old Testament book because Exodus is the story of salvation. The message of the whole Bible acted out in one book of the Old Testament in the life of the ancient Israelites. As one Old Testament scholar put it, uh, Exodus is... um, the, the greatest, the largest visual aid ever enacted. And in the story, we learn a ton about God's heart toward us as people. We learn a ton about our hearts toward God as people, and we learn the only way those two hearts can come together. And so as we begin this morning, we're kind of at the, the climactic moment of Exodus. In chapter 19, it starts telling the story of a divine meeting between the Israelites and God. We actually pick up that narrative right there in the setting in chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. You see that setting. It, there's some details of like where they went, and then there's the repeated statement: "There, Moses or Israel encamped before the mountain." This is an important setting. This is really what we've been building up to so far, all along. You see, in chapter three, verse twelve, if we go all the way back that far, which we covered several weeks ago now here at Harvest. Uh, God had told Moses, this is when God was calling Moses and sending him off to be his representative, and he said to Moses, I'm going to send you, you're going to rescue the Israelites from Egypt, or I'm going to rescue them through you, and then you will bring them back to worship me on this mountain. So you see, Mount Sinai was always marked into God's GPS. It was always his plan to bring the people to this place. But it's opposite from the promised land in many ways. It's literally geographically opposite, almost 180 degrees the opposite direction. Think about it. As the Israelites are here encamped before Mount Sinai, they are further away from the promised land than they were when they were in Egypt. So God has been leading them the wrong way versus where he said he was going to lead them. Secondly, it's opposite just in terms of its quality. Uh, The promised land was a good land, flowing with milk and honey, is the Bible's phrase. And here they are at Sinai in this arid desert wilderness. So often it's like that following God, isn't it? We go all in for Jesus. We trust him for big things. And then all hell breaks loose in our lives. Calamity buries us, and we wonder why God, so loving and so powerful, would allow this to happen. Why doesn't he just change things? Why doesn't he just give us 
what we need. Why do people die? Why does cancer hit? Why do riots shut countries down? Where is God in all of this? Why did God take them here? Why did God lead them opposite of where he promised to take them into a wilderness, not a paradise? Well, in chapter 14, verse 17, he answered that question for us. Just as they're coming out of the land of Egypt, he told us as readers what was going on. He knew that the people would freak out at the first sign of battle, turn tail, and run from God's plan. In other words, their hearts weren't fully his yet. Even though they thought their hearts were fully God's, but they weren't. Comfort and security in this life is what was ultimately beautiful to them, not the infinite worth of God. They loved the gift, we might say, more than the giver. They probably didn't realize that at the time, but that was true and God knew it. They wanted the promised land, but God? God can be kind of scary. And so God isn't just going to give them the gift of the promised land. He's going to give them himself. Often that's what God is doing. That's not always why God causes or allows bad things to happen to us. There are many reasons that can happen. But one of them sometimes is that God is teaching us to love him more. That's definitely what was happening here with the Israelites. That's why he took them not to paradise but to a desert. He wants to lead them to love the giver more than the gift. So before they get the gift... They're going to get a meeting with the giver. This meeting with God is designed to capture their hearts, to build a sense of awe that they don't yet have, a sense of trust that they don't fully have, a sense of deference and submission to an extent that they don't currently possess. It ultimately is to produce obedience. In short, he brings them to Sinai in order to meet them and forever change them by the meeting. So that's our setting. We're here before Sinai for this life-changing meeting with God. And the rest of chapter 19 uh, is interesting. It's it's no accident that they're at a mountain. Um, In ancient cultures, uh, the typical religious uh, practice is that ancient cultures would build altars and worship their gods on the high places. That's the phrase you often encounter even in the Old Testament. That usually means up on a hill or, or up on the mountains. The idea was you, you go and, and, and do your acts of worship up where the gods are. You climb the mountain to get as close to where the gods are supposed to be so that you can be as close as possible to them. In fact, many uh, ancient towns were built around what's called a ziggurat. Archaeologists have dug these things up. It, it's basically a, a pyramid structure that was like the highest point in the town, and that's where uh, the gods would be worshipped up on top of that, that pyramid altar, and the, the town would be built around it. And see, God is here accommodating himself to that normal flow of how the people who lived in the world back then understood to connect with God. Mount Sinai is like God's own ziggurat. Uh, Not one of human making, it's one of his own choosing. This is the place on the mountain where they are going to meet their God. Which means that Moses, as the mediator, is is running between God and his people and he's got to go to the top of the mountain to meet with God. And so actually the rest of this chapter is, is built around mountain climbing, of all things. In chapter 19, Moses is going to make three trips to the top of Sinai and back. No wonder the dude lived to like 120. He was in shape, right? Three trips where he goes up and receives God's words and then brings God's words back down to the people of Israel and gets their response and then takes it back up to God. And all of this is happening in preparation. The anticipation is building throughout chapter 19 for when the people are finally going to encounter God up close and personal 
to see their hearts changed. Let's see how it goes. The first hike up the mountain happens in verses 3 through 8. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses goes back down the mountain, came and called the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses' first climb up the mountain has a central message. And God says essentially to his people, I am the one who's driving this whole thing. That's, that's the first thing you need to do in anticipation of this meeting that's coming, is you need to understand I am the one who is the initiator. You saw that in verses 4 and 5. He basically said to Moses three things. First of all, remember that I saved you. <laughs> and he's referring back to all the miracles and the crossing of the Red Sea. I just rescued you guys out of Egypt. God's act of grace, his saving act, was the very first thing that happened. They didn't do anything to deserve that or to earn it. They simply cried out for help and God came and rescued. He said, that's why we can have a relationship because I start. Now, your obedience to me is the second thing. It comes in response. If indeed you will obey my covenant, then the third thing will happen. You will receive the blessing. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. You'll get to the promised land. It's going to be good. You see, the order is grace and then obedience in response to God's grace and then blessing. And that order is essential. The Bible never wavers from that. It continues to insist from start to finish that this is how a relationship with God works. It is as true today as it was back then. God initiates by saving undeserving people and we as people are to receive and respond to that salvation in obedience. I think it's a default human assumption to think that we have to live up to God's standards if we want him to accept us. I mean, almost all of the relationships that we ever enter are conditional, at least to an extent. <laughs> you do your part, I'll do my part, and then maybe we can have a good relationship. And so it's just natural to think of, of God that way. I'll do my part, then maybe you do your part. I'll be good, I'll check a few of your boxes, then maybe you answer some of my prayers. This is how it works, right? That's the default human assumption. That's the normal way all of us, I think, tend to think. It leads us to think that we have to clean up our lives before we come to church or approach God in prayer. But the Bible's message is exactly the opposite of that. And we see that here in the earliest chapters of the Bible. The New Testament puts the same idea this way. It says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything. We didn't give God any money. We didn't do any good works. While we were still sinners, Christ came and died. God's initiating act of grace is always the basis for a relationship with him. This Christmas season, we celebrate that God came down to us born as a man, Jesus, and then lived a righteous life in our place. 
and died a sinner's death in our place on the cross. And in his grace, he offers us eternal life. It's the only way a relationship with God can work. If we start trying to get in and earn some of it, the whole thing falls apart. As one great hymn puts it, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to you for dress, referring to God. Helpless I look to you for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So to my brothers and sisters in Christ, having begun in grace, this Christmas season, it's a good time to ask ourselves, are we now continuing in works? To uh, paraphrase the New Testament book, of Galatians, to understand that God's grace saved us, but now to perform and to live and to build our sense of who we are on the fact that I'm a pretty good person. I follow God. I go to church. I, I, I have a good family. I, whatever. Christmas is when we celebrate that it's all God's initiative. We bring nothing to the table. And you know, if you're, if you're here with us this morning and you're still just trying to figure God out, Know this. I hope that you hear this. If you catch nothing else from what the Bible is saying, catch this. We cannot clean up enough for God to accept us. That's not how this works. He's already paid our debt for us. That's his act of saving grace. We must come to him empty-handed and receive it. That was the first lesson the Israelites needed in preparation to meet God. Understand, I've already saved you. Now enter into a covenant and obey me in response to that salvation. Not to earn that salvation. It's already happened in response to it. And only then will you receive the blessings that you're after. That's the message God sent Moses down the mountain with. And it's a relationship they said, it's a message they said, absolutely. A relationship with God starts with him, but as it turns out, it continues in him, which is the topic of the second trip up the mountain. We pick up that as this narrative moves on, second half of verse 8. People had just said all that the, word, the words of the Lord have spoken, uh, we will do, and Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So he's back up the mountain now for the second time. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them. Here's the second message. Okay, now here's, here's what you go down and tell them. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. We're getting ready for this meeting. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. Then when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. This second message that Moses comes down the mountain with, God tells the Israelites to, to consecrate two things. To consecrate means to, to kind of set it aside, to, to prepare, get ready. The first thing they were told to consecrate is the mountain itself. 
um, as again, as God's ziggurat in the old language, the the um, the culture uh, and the language of that day, it represented Mount Sinai. Now represented God's dwelling. He said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna come here." And and just as in chapter three, Moses approached the burning bush, and God said, "Take off your sandals, for the ground you are standing on is holy, because my presence is here." So now Mount Sinai becomes the holy place of God's presence. You prepare to meet a holy God. You don't go up and treat that. Um, casually. He says, don't even touch the mountain for three days. The second thing they were to consecrate was themselves. Consecrate themselves. He says, wash your clothes so that you come standing before God ready. You don't wander in like, you know, you were just working in the field all day. And then interestingly, he told even married couples for these next couple of days, abstain from sexual relations with each other. Now, again, some of the the thinking of the Canaanite religions of the day may help us understand a little bit about what's going on here. The Canaanite thinking was that people had to basically get the attention of the gods to provoke them into action. That's what it meant to be a follower of of the gods back then. And they would do this in a variety of ways. Again, up on these high places, they would engage in what they considered to be religious acts that were designed to get the attention of the gods. Sometimes they actually used sex for this purpose. And um, we'll avoid all the details because everything we've learned from archaeology and history about the sex practices of these ancient cults and their worship is frankly disgusting and heinously immoral. I'll just say simply that they would engage in public orgies up on the high places in full view of, of the gods in an effort to arouse them. That, that was their thinking. This, this was what their religious worship was. It's what they thought they had to do. Uh, other times they, they committed other crazy acts. There was one God named Molech, if you know your Old Testament, you've heard him referred to where some of his followers would sacrifice their live babies by burning them alive in the fire to the gods to show the depth of their devotion and provoke the gods to action. It's horrific stuff. Or one even thinks of uh, 1 Kings 17 where Elijah is having a duel with the prophets of, of Baal, a, a prominent Canaanite god, up on the mountain the mountaintop, the high places. And what are, they, what are the prophets of Baal doing? They're, they're capering about and they're dancing and they're yelling and they're screaming and wailing and crying out to try to get their God's attention. And when that doesn't work, they even cut themselves and they bleed and they hurt themselves. Like this was their religious worship. We have to do crazy stuff to provoke a response from gods who were thought to be otherwise preoccupied, uninterested, basically self-absorbed or just flat out lazy. To them, that's what it meant to worship the gods. God's instructions here amount to telling the Israelites, it is totally different with me. Don't approach me the way you see these other people around you worshiping their small g gods. God is the initiator here, not people. We've already seen that. But you see what that means is that God is engaged already. He he doesn't need us to grab his attention as if he doesn't know or doesn't care. Frankly, God is far more engaged in most of the details of our lives than we are with him. God is already engaged. The way into a relationship with God is not to do a bunch of good deeds or sacrificial acts or to give a lot of money or perform a lot of good actions in order to get God's attention and prove our worth to him. Rather, we leave our self-reliance behind We stand before him empty-handed and we respond to his initiating grace. That's what this consecration period was about. Set all that stuff aside, come to the foot of the mountain, wait for my signal, I'm the initiator, you're the responders, the trumpet blast will come, then you come up onto the mountain for the meeting. 
So message number two was, be ready to meet me. Come hear my voice when I signal you. So the first message we saw that God's the initiator, and the second message, we are responders to who he is. But coming to hear God's voice is a dangerous and confusing proposition, and that's what the third and final trip up the mountain was really all about. Verses 16 to 25. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. So here's now our third journey. Here's what God says to Moses. Verse 21. Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people can't come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. But the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. What's going on here? (laughs) We finally get to Moses' third climb. And I think the key idea here is God's unapproachable holiness seems to take center stage Uh, first we see that when God's presence comes down as here's the third day we're all getting ready to have this meeting with God and so they step out there and all of a sudden like it's nighttime in the middle of the day there is a, a storm with clouds so thick it looks like it's night in the middle of the day have you ever experienced something like that we don't get many storms like that here in our uh, northwest corner of the country but some of us have been in the Midwest or places like Africa and the plains where you see storms roll in that literally take your breath away. You can feel barometric pressure changing. Light dims and it looks like it's nighttime. There's, there's thunder that you feel as much as you hear. And in their case, there were even earthquakes. The very ground beneath their feet was trembling. This was an overwhelming and powerful spectacle. And we're told flat out, they were, they were terrified. Who wouldn't be And then God calls Moses up to the mountain one more time and his message to Moses is go back and tell the people not to come all the way up here. And interestingly, this is the one time Moses sort of questions God. In in verse 23, he's like, they're not going to come up. You already told us not to come up. Why do I need to go tell them not to come up? Moses doesn't seem to think the people need that reminder and yet God seems to think they do. And so he tells Moses to go tell them. The narrative at this point is really intricate and we're not given all the details, so it's a little bit difficult for Bible scholars to understand exactly the details of everything that's going on here. On the one hand, the people as a whole were terrified of God's visible presence. We're told that very clearly. On the other hand, God is concerned that at least some of them may break through and come up too close to the mountain. Most seemed too scared, while perhaps some might not have been scared enough. 
I guess I'm not really surprised in the narrative about the approach of God that it's complicated because I think God approaching us is complicated. What do you do when the unapproachable approaches? Most of us run for the hills, right? Self-preservation, that's the natural instinct. And that's exactly what the vast majority of the Israelites were going to do. In fact, I think there's at least three ways that people tend to respond to a holy God. This is probably all sort of a spectrum, but it helps to think of them in three separate categories. On the one hand, we can become so enamored with God's grace and mercy. This may especially be true of people who have been Christians for many, many years. We become so accustomed to the idea of God being merciful and loving, which he is, and we know it well, and we become so used to the idea that God has given us grace and accepted us as his sons and daughters that it can, it doesn't always, but it can lead us to sort of presume upon his love a little bit. And we can develop an unhealthy familiarity that, that sort of demeans and doesn't take seriously God's holiness. It's the kind of Jesus is my bestie thing, you know? That apparently was God's concern here. He says, Moses, at least some of these people have the potential to think that because I've chosen you, they can come up further than I intend them to. And if they get too close to me, they're going to die because I'm holy and they're not. You better go down and warn them to take my holiness seriously. On the other hand, that, that may be one way of responding to God. On the other hand, there's, there's the other extreme. Maybe that self-preservation instinct kicks in and we can become so overwhelmed by God's power and holiness that we shrink back from him in fear. We want nothing to do with this kind of a scary God, a God who sits as judge over all the earth, a God who is all-powerful, a God who answers to no one but himself, a God we cannot tame. And so we want to shrink back in fear, and, and that's what the Israelites as a whole did, and we'll see that here in just a second. But before we get there, it's worth pointing out that there is a third way to respond to the approach of the unapproachable. A third way is to respond to both, to, to both his approach and his unapproachableness, his holiness and his mercy. When we do that, it, it produces uh, what John Piper has referred to as a Godward life. I, I, I like that phrase, a, a Godward life. It, it means like every... Every moment of my life is, I'm, I'm conscious of, I'm sort of like orbiting God, I'm, I'm oriented toward God. I, I recognize that every moment of every day, every thought, every emotion, every decision, every secret thing going on in my life is not secret to God. And, and I'm aware of that. I know he is there and that I'm living my life, uh, coram Deo, they would have said in the old days, before the face of God. And so it kind of produces a Godward life where I'm, I'm conscious of his holiness as the universe is judge. And at the same time, I desire to please him because he is the father who has initiated grace in my life to save me from that very judgment. So you see, I don't only see God as a threatening judge, nor do I only see Jesus as my bestie. I see that there's elements of truth in both, and so I respond with a Godward life or what we might call a healthy fear of God. The Bible just calls it the fear of God. The fear of God is one part 
recognizing his unapproachable holiness as the universe's judge. And one part, desperation to please a God I love so much because he's already loved me so much at the same time. It's the kind of healthy fear I felt in a small way when I was walking home to my parents on that lonely Halloween night many years ago. I feared their punishment. I feared disappointing them because I love them and they love me. That's the relationship God is looking for from his people here. He's getting two opposite responses. He's looking for the Godward life response where they would obey him because they rightly fear him as holy judge and because they want to please him out of love. So that's, that's the heart change. That's the meeting that is now taking place. So did Israel get it? Three trips up the mountain, three steps of consecration. Understand I'm the initiator. Understand you're the responders. Consecrate yourselves. And then when you hear the trumpet sound, come up to the mountain to hear me speak. But don't warn them not to get too close. So that sets up the meeting. Did the Israelites get it? Chapter 20. God spoke all these words saying. And what follows for the next 17 verses is the Ten Commandments. God speaks these ten simple, clear laws, principles for his people to follow, stipulating the details of the covenant that they're going to have with him. Now, we're actually going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, address the content of these commandments um, more when we get to the second half of Exodus and we talk about the law and the covenant that God gave to his people starting in February. For today, here's what I want us to see is the importance of how this unfolded within the narrative of meeting God in chapter 19. The important thing I think to recognize is that while God speaks the Ten Commandments audibly to Moses, he does so in the hearing of all the people. This was the meeting. <laughs> this was the meeting. He told us that back in chapter uh, 19, verse 19, the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered in thunder. They're hearing the trumpet. They're hearing God speak. And later on in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses recounts this episode to the people and he says, you all heard God's voice. This is the meeting. Here they are. They're up on the foot of Mount Sinai, God's dwelling place, and they are hearing Moses, or hearing God rather, speak to Moses and saying in God's own thunderous voice, this is what I want you to do in obedience to me because I've saved you. God wants them to hear his voice to cement their hearts to him in a healthy fear. So, did it work? Drop down to verse 18 of chapter 20. One, uh, one through 17, two through 17 rather, he lays out the Ten Commandments. Now verse 18, we get the response of the people. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now, God had just spoken to them and they didn't die, but the experience was so frightening. They said, we want no more of that. We want no part of that, man. Moses, you go talk to God and just come back and tell us what he says. But look at Moses' response, verse 20. He said to the people, Don't fear, for God has come to test you so that the fear of him may be before you and you may not sin. Now that's an interesting thing to say, is it not? <laughs> Don't fear, God is testing you so that you will fear. 
The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Did it work? Well, apparently not. Apparently not. The people as a whole are so terrified that they decide they want no part of being close to God. They are so obsessed with their self-preservation and their own comfort that they would rather have less of God and a small blessing than more of God and ultimate blessing. Moses urges them to come back to the mountain, but they refuse. They were clearly experiencing the kind of fear that was driving them away from God. That was never the intent. God has said, you already know I'm for you. Good night. I parted the Red Sea. I did all these miracles. What more could I do to show you that I care about you and have chosen you to be my people? So come and deal with my unapproachable holiness so that you will learn to fear me rightly, knowing I'm the judge of the universe and the God who loves you so much. It's not the kind of fear they had. They just said, we don't want anything to do with that God because he's rocking our world too much. And so they said, "Uh uh-uh, we're out. We're out. Instead of coming up onto the mountain to hear God, they backed way off and sent Moses instead. God is coming to test you, Moses says. We've heard that language before in Exodus. He's he's testing you with all the pyrotechnics and the the loud voice and the thunder and the miracles. It's It's a test. It's designed to reveal what's really in your hearts, you see? That's what it means. Don't fail the test. Don't be so obsessed, he's telling the Israelites, with your own personal little here and now comfort that you're missing the big picture of the God of the universe who loves you. And you're missing the opportunity to live a Godward life. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12 looks back on this scene. And it tells us in no uncertain terms that the Israelites failed God here. Uh, Even after everything he did for them, their hearts just couldn't shake free of their own kind of small selfishness. I just see my world. That's, That's how we are naturally, or the Bible would say sinfully bent to think. They still don't want the giver. They just want as much of the gift as they can get without going too far out on a limb. And God's presence was too far. So we end the first half of the book of Exodus on a really awkward note, right? There's this big buildup to the climactic meeting that's going to start a whole new relationship with God and his people. And God does so much work to get ready for it. And he gives them so much instruction. And they're like, yeah, we're all in and we're ready for this happily ever after story. And right when we get to that moment, it all falls apart. It just dissonant, clanky note. And it just grinds to a halt. God's plan to lead them to Sinai didn't work in terms of cementing their hearts to him, which actually points to a consistent theme in the Bible, not just in the book of Exodus, all throughout the Bible. One of the Bible's key messages is no matter how good God is, we still tend to want him on our own terms. We still want to do some things for him, even kind of as a tool to manipulate him to get for us what we want. We have to be able to tame him somehow. The problem isn't with God, the problem is with us. Our hearts are just too self-oriented and sinful to interpret the truth of who God is rightly and respond to it appropriately even when that truth is right in front of us. If there's to be any hope for us with God, we're going to need a new heart. And that's where the Bible starts going with this. 
we're going to pick up the story back in February and see what this meant for the Israelites and God for the rest of their time in the wilderness with some implications for us. But as we kind of wrap up this first half of Exodus, it's entirely appropriate that we're doing it in the Christmas season. In fact, the very Sunday before we celebrate Christmas, which is going to be next Sunday. Because if there is any hope for us, we're going to need a new heart. And Jesus came precisely to give it to us. That's the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. He came down off the mountain of heaven, the real mountain, not just like a make-believe, you know, pretend ziggurat visual aid. God came down out of heaven to be with us because we simply couldn't go up to be with him. Emmanuel, God says his name is, a Hebrew word that means God with us. God is with us, especially when we couldn't go be with him. And he didn't come in thunder and an earthquake. He came humble and weak as an infant child. This Christmas, may we come to Jesus, to God in human flesh, who came so far for us and received his gift of forgiveness of sins, substitute righteousness, and eternal life. Because friends, that's where hope in a dark world really comes from being connected rightly to a God who rules all, loves us desperately enough that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you've got questions about what it means to begin a relationship with Jesus, myself and some of our church leaders will be down here in the front afterwards. I invite you to come down and talk with us or talk to a Christian you came to church with. Let's embrace Christ. God made man come off the mountain for us this Christmas. Would you pray with me as our music minister team comes back up to lead us in worship by singing. Father, we come to you now recognizing so much, at least I personally feel, I see so much of myself in the story of the Israelites. I mean, they lived so long ago, their culture is so much different than mine, but the human heart really has not changed. The desperate need and desire to be with you and to receive from you, and yet how complicated it is when the unapproachable approaches. And God, you are the only one, you tell us, who gives us the path out of that. You yourself have come all the way down off the mountain, as it were, in the baby Jesus, to live and die that we might have life. God, thank you and worship you for coming to be a man. I pray that in this Christmas season and even this morning, you would help every man and woman in this room to see you more clearly and respond to you more rightly. And even now as we reflect on what you've laid out in these chapters of the Bible and then sing to you, I pray that you would receive the worship and the praise of grateful people and grateful hearts. For our good and your glory, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.